Section thirty nine of Volume One E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight by David Hume. Volume One E section thirty nine chapter fifty eight part three in the other parts of england hereford was taken by surprise chester surrendered lord digby who had attempted with one thousand two hundred horse to break into scotland and join montrose was defeated at sherborne in yorkshire by colonel copley his whole force was dispersed and he himself was obliged to fly first to the isle of man thence to ireland news too arrived that montrose himself after some more successes was at last routed and this only remaining hope of the royal party finally extinguished when montrose descended into the southern counties the covenanters assembling their whole force met him with a numerous army and gave him battle but without success at kilsith this was the most complete victory that montrose ever obtained the royalists put to sword six thousand of their enemies and left the covenanters no remains of any army in scotland the whole kingdom was shaken with these repeated successes of montrose and many noblemen who secretly favoured the royal cause now declared openly for it when they saw a force able to support them the marquis of douglas the earls of annandale and hartfield the lords fleming seaton maderty carnegie with many others flocked to the royal standard edinburgh opened its gates and gave liberty to all the prisoners there detained by the covenanters among the rest was lord ogilvy son of airly whose family had contributed extremely to the victory gained at kilsith david leslie was detached from the army in england and marched to the relief of his distressed party in scotland montrose advanced still farther to the south allured by vain hopes both of rousing to arms the earls of hume traquair and roxburgh who had promised to join him and of obtaining from england some supply of cavalry in which he was deficient by the negligence of his scouts leslie at philipbore in the forest surprised his army much diminished in numbers from the desertion of the highlanders who had retired to the hills according to custom in order to secure their plunder after a sharp conflict where montrose exerted great valour his forces were routed by leslie's cavalry and he himself was obliged to fly with his broken forces into the mountains where he again prepared himself for new battles and new enterprises the covenanters used the victory with rigour 
their prisoners sir robert spottiswood secretary of state and son to the late primate sir philip nisbet sir william hollow colonel nathaniel gordon andrew guthrie son of the bishop of murray william murray son of the earl of tullibardine were condemned and executed the sole crime imputed to the secretary was his delivering to montrose the king's commission to be captain-general of scotland lord ogilvy who was again taken prisoner would have undergone the same fate had not his sister found means to procure his escape by changing clothes with him for this instance of courage and dexterity she met with harsh usage the clergy solicited the parliament that more royalists might be executed but could not obtain their request after all these repeated disasters which everywhere befell the royal party there remained only one body of troops on which fortune could exercise her rigour lord astley with a small army of three thousand men chiefly cavalry marching to oxford in order to join the king was met at stowe by colonel morgan and entirely defeated himself being taken prisoner you have done your work said astley to the parliamentary officers and may now go to play unless you choose to fall out among yourselves the condition of the king during this whole winter was to the last degree disastrous and melancholy as the dread of ills is commonly more oppressive than their real presence perhaps in no period of his life was he more justly the object of compassion his vigour of mind which though it sometimes failed him in acting never deserted him in his sufferings was what alone supported him and he was determined as he wrote to lord digby if he could not live as a king to die like a gentleman nor should any of his friends he said ever have reason to blush for the prince whom they had so unfortunately served the murmurs of discontented officers on the one hand harassed their unhappy sovereign while they overrated those services and sufferings which they now saw must forever go unrewarded the affectionate duty on the other hand of his more generous friends who respected his misfortunes and his virtues as much as his dignity wrung his heart with a new sorrow when he reflected that such disinterested attachment would so soon be exposed to the rigour of his implacable enemies repeated attempts which he had made for a peaceful and equitable accommodation with the parliament served to no purpose but to convince them that the victory was entirely in their hands they deigned not to make the least reply to several of his messages in which he desired a passport for commissioners at last after reproaching him with the blood spilt during the war they told him that they were preparing bills for him and his passing them would be the best pledge of his inclination towards peace in other words he must yield at discretion he desired a personal treaty 
and offered to come to london upon receiving a safe conduct for himself and his attendants they absolutely refused him admittance and issued orders for the guarding that is the seizing of his person in case he should attempt to visit them a new incident which happened in ireland served to inflame the minds of men and to increase those calumnies with which his enemies had so much loaded him and which he ever regarded as the most grievous part of his misfortunes after the cessation with the irish rebels the king was desirous of concluding a final peace with them and obtaining their assistance in england and he gave authority to ormond lord lieutenant to promise them an abrogation of all the penal laws enacted against catholics together with the suspension of poyning's statute with regard to some particular bills which should be agreed on lord herbert created earl of glamorgan though his patent had not yet passed the seals having occasion for his private affairs to go to ireland the king considered that this nobleman being a catholic and allied to the best irish families might be of service he also foresaw that further concessions with regard to religion might probably be demanded by the bigoted irish and that as these concessions however necessary would give great scandal to the protestant zealots in his three kingdoms it would be requisite both to conceal them during some time and to preserve ormond's character by giving private orders to glamorgan to conclude and sign these articles but as he had a better opinion of glamorgan's zeal and affection for his service than of his capacity he enjoined him to communicate all his measures to ormond and though the final conclusion of the treaty must be executed only in glamorgan's own name he was required to be directed in the steps towards it by the opinion of the lord lieutenant glamorgan bigoted to his religion and passionate for the king's service but guided in these pursuits by no manner of judgment or discretion secretly of himself without any communication with ormond concluded a peace with the council of kilkenny and agreed in the king's name that the irish should enjoy all the churches of which they had ever been in possession since the commencement of their insurrection on condition that they should assist the king in england with a body of ten thousand men this transaction was discovered by accident the titular archbishop of tuam being killed by a sally of the garrison of sligo the articles of the treaty were found among his baggage and were immediately published everywhere and copies of them sent over to the english parliament the lord lieutenant and lord digby foreseeing the clamour which would be raised against the king committed glamorgan to prison charged him with treason for his temerity and maintained that he had acted altogether without any authority from his master the english parliament however neglected not so favourable an opportunity of reviving the old clamour with regard to the king's favour of popery 
and accused him of delivering over in a manner the whole kingdom of ireland to that hated sect the king told them that the earl of glamorgan having made an offer to raise forces in the kingdom of ireland and to conduct them into england for his majesty's service had a commission to that purpose and to that purpose only and that he had no commission at all to treat of anything else without the privity and direction of the lord lieutenant much less to capitulate anything concerning religion or any property belonging either to church or laity though this declaration seems agreeable to truth it gave no satisfaction to the parliament and some historians even at present when the ancient bigotry is somewhat abated are desirous of representing this very innocent transaction in which the king was engaged by the most violent necessity as a stain on the memory of that unfortunate prince having lost all hope of prevailing over the rigour of the parliament either by means of arms or treaty the only resource which remained to the king was derived from the intestine dissensions which ran very high among his enemies presbyterians and independents even before their victory was fully completed fell into contests about the division of the spoil and their religious as well as civil disputes agitated the whole kingdom the parliament though they had early abolished episcopal authority had not during so long a time substituted any other spiritual government in its place and their committees of religion had hitherto assumed the whole ecclesiastical jurisdiction but they now established by an ordinance the presbyterian model in all its forms of congregational classical provincial and national assemblies all the inhabitants of each parish were ordered to meet and choose elders on whom together with the minister was bestowed the entire direction of all spiritual concerns within the congregation a number of neighbouring parishes commonly between twelve and twenty formed a classis and the court which governed this division was composed of all the ministers together with two three or four elders chosen from each parish the provincial assembly retained an inspection over several neighbouring classes and was composed entirely of clergymen the national assembly was constituted in the same manner and its authority extended over the whole kingdom it is probable that the tyranny exercised by the scottish clergy had given warning not to allow laymen a place in the provincial or national assemblies lest the nobility and more considerable gentry soliciting a seat in these great ecclesiastical courts should bestow a consideration upon them and render them in the eyes of the multitude a rival to the parliament in the inferior courts the mixture of the laity might serve rather to temper the usual zeal of the clergy but though the presbyterians by the establishment of parity among the ecclesiastics were so far gratified they were denied satisfaction in several other points on which they were extremely intent 
the assembly of divines had voted presbytery to be of divine right the parliament refused their assent to that decision selden whitlock and other political reasoners assisted by the independents had prevailed in this important deliberation they thought that had the bigoted religionists been able to get their heavenly charter recognized the presbyters would soon become more dangerous to the magistrate than had ever been the prelatical clergy these latter while they claimed to themselves a divine right admitted of a like origin to civil authority the former challenging to their own order a celestial pedigree derived the legislative power from a source no more dignified than the voluntary association of the people under colour of keeping the sacraments from profanation the clergy of all christian sects had assumed what they call the power of the keys or the right of fulminating excommunication the example of scotland was a sufficient lesson for the parliament to use precaution in guarding against so severe a tyranny they determined by a general ordinance all the cases in which excommunication could be used they allowed of appeals to parliament from all ecclesiastical courts and they appointed commissioners in every province to judge of such cases as fell not within their general ordinance so much civil authority intermixed with the ecclesiastical gave disgust to all the zealots but nothing was attended with more universal scandal than the propensity of many in the parliament towards a toleration of the protestant sectaries the protestants exclaimed that this indulgence made the church of christ resemble noah's ark and rendered it a receptacle for all unclean beasts they insisted that the least of christ's truths was superior to all political considerations they maintained the external obligation imposed by the covenant to extirpate heresy and schism and they menaced all their opponents with the same rigid persecution under which they themselves had groaned when held in subjection by the hierarchy so great prudence and reserve in such material points does great honour to the parliament and proves that notwithstanding the prevalence of bigotry and fanaticism there were many members who had more enlarged views and paid regard to the civil interests of society these men uniting themselves to the enthusiasts whose genius is naturally averse to clerical usurpations exercised so jealous an authority over the assembly of divines that they allowed themselves nothing but the liberty of tendering advice and would not entrust them even with the power of electing their own chairman or his substitute or of supplying the vacancies of their own members while these disputes were canvassed by theologians who engaged in their spiritual contests every order of the state the king though he entertained hopes of reaping advantage from those divisions was as much at a loss which side it would be most for his interest to comply with the presbyterians were by their principles 
the least averse to regal authority but were rigidly bent on the extirpation of prelacy the independents were resolute to lay the foundation of a republican government but as they pretended not to erect themselves into a national church it might be hoped that if gratified with a toleration they would admit the re-establishment of the hierarchy so great attachment had the king to episcopal jurisdiction that he was ever inclined to put it in balance even with his own power and kingly office but whatever advantage he might hope to reap from the divisions in the parliamentary party he was apprehensive lest it should come too late to save him from the destruction with which he was instantly threatened fairfax was approaching with a powerful and victorious army and was taking the proper measures for laying siege to oxford which must infallibly fall into his hands to be taken captive and led in triumph by his insolent enemies was what charles justly abhorred and every insult if not violence was to be dreaded from that enthusiastic soldiery who hated his person and despised his dignity he embraced a measure which in any other situation might lie under the imputation of imprudence and indiscretion montreville the french minister interested for the king more by the natural sentiments of humanity than any instructions from his court which seemed rather to favour the parliament had solicited the Scottish generals and commissioners to give protection to their distressed sovereign, and having received many general professions and promises, he had always transmitted these, perhaps with some exaggeration, to the king. From his suggestions, Charles began to entertain thoughts of leaving Oxford, and flying to the Scottish army, which at that time lay before Newark he considered that the scottish nation had been fully gratified in all their demands and having already in their own country annihilated both episcopacy and regal authority had no further concessions to exact from him in all disputes which had passed about settling the terms of peace the scots he heard had still adhered to the milder side and had endeavoured to soften the rigour of the english parliament great disgusts also on other accounts had taken place between the nations and the scots found that in proportion as their assistance became less necessary less value was put upon them the progress of the independence gave them great alarm and they were scandalised to hear their beloved covenant spoken every day with less regard and reverence the refusal of a divine right to presbytery and the infringing of ecclesiastical discipline from political considerations were to them the subject of much offence and the king hoped in their present disposition the plight of their native prince flying to them in this extremity of distress would rouse every spark of generosity in their bosom and procure him their favour and protection. End of section thirty nine, chapter fifty eight, part three.